say thank, by the way, say thank you to Matt McLean who recorded all of that and then edited it and put it together for us. We're blessed to have him as our director of communications. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for the many ways you have showered your love upon us. Help us to learn the true nature of your love so that we can put that love into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So God's peace be with you, friends. I dare say that uh, probably everyone likes a good love song. Uh, you hopefully uh, were able to come up with at least one uh, love song that you uh, shared with somebody. We all like a good, a good love song, don't we? You probably have a, a favorite or two, and maybe you even uh, danced to one of those at your high school prom or maybe you dance to your favorite love song at your wedding reception, whatever. Love songs, they touch the heart, don't they? Uh, we're, we're continuing in this sermon series on the Summer in the Psalms, Selections from God's Playlist. And today, the selection from God's playlist is Psalm number 103. And we're considering it under the theme a love song from God. Psalm 103 was written by David, King David, the king of Israel. And as you recall, David was a gifted musician and songwriter. David composed many of the psalms of the Old Testament, including Psalm 103. This particular psalm begins and ends with a call to praise the Lord. The beginning and the ending are, are similar. They, they're kind of like bookends of praise. Praise the Lord, beginning and ending. The closing words of praise are directed to everyone and everything, to the angels and all of creation. They are all called upon to praise the Lord. But the opening words of praise are more personal. In fact, the opening words are directed to David himself. Remember, David wrote this, and he directs them to himself. He starts by saying, Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's almost as if David was reminding himself to put his own faith into practice. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's a good reminder to all of us as well that we are to apply God's Word to ourselves, to our own lives, and then to express our personal faith by first giving praise to our Lord, our Savior, our God. David certainly had a lot to praise the Lord about because he himself, in a very personal way, experienced the love of God. You remember David's story. Though he was king of Israel, though he was a man after the heart of God, he had some moral failures. At one point in his life, he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, who was married. He made sure that Bathsheba's husband was put to death, so he basically committed murder, and then he tried to cover it all up. He was confronted by God's prophet, Nathan, and through that confrontation, David confessed and admitted his wrongs, and God forgave him 
for all of it, not just some of it, for all of it. And David was restored back into that right relationship with God. And it's God's forgiving love of David that moves him then to sing his praises and to write this song, a love song from God. The opening verses read this way, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Yeah, David had been in the pit of his own shame and guilt. And crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What a renewal David went through because of the loving, forgiving grace of God experienced as love in his life personally. Let me ask you, are those words of David your words also? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Are those your words? Maybe you're not quite at a place where you are ready or able to make those words your own personally. My prayer is that in due time, you will be able to make them your own and say to yourself, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Well, in between the bookends of praise in Psalm 103 are words that are directed to all the people of Israel and therefore to all of us as well. And so it's these lyrics that we're going to focus on today, the lyrics of this middle portion of the song. They speak of the nature of God's love. What is God's love really all about? What's it like? Now, the introduction to this middle section comes in verses 6 and 7. reads this way. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now here, David is about to remind all the people of how much God loves them. And he begins, interestingly, by reminding them of God's loving acts in the past on his people's behalf. He mentions Moses, which immediately brings up the story of God delivering his people out of slavery through the works of Moses, delivering them out of Egypt and leading them to the promised land of Canaan. It was one of God's greatest acts up to this time of David. And he reflects on that. And the point of these words is clear, that love involves action. Love is more than just saying, I love you. Love is doing what demonstrates the fact that I love you. One of my favorite love songs uh, came out back in 1990. It's entitled, More Than Words by the singing group Extreme. I want to read just some of the lyrics because I think they're really very meaningful. It says, saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. More than words is all you have to do to make it real. 
then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. What would you do if my heart was torn in two? More than words to show you feel that your love for me is real. What would you say if I took those words away? Then you couldn't make things new just by saying, I love you. More than words. Now that I've tried to talk to you and make you understand, all you have to do is close your eyes and just reach out your hands and touch me. Hold me close. Don't ever let me go. More than words is all I ever needed you to show. Then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. Great words. Love is action. And David points out that God demonstrated his love by his actions on behalf of his people. What does God's love look like then? Well, let's dig into this wonderful psalm. We're going to examine the heart of this middle section of the song, verses 8 through 13. I like to call it a love song from God. Starting at verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is what his love starts to look like. First of all, it's compassionate. The word compassion literally means feeling with. Feeling with someone so much that you feel what they feel and you are moved to do something on their behalf. God feels with you, friend. He knows what you're going through, whatever it may be. In fact, he even feels it as you feel it. And he cares about your circumstances. The Lord is compassionate. He's also gracious, David says. Gracious. That is, he acts out of grace toward you and me. What is grace? It's God's undeserved love toward people. We don't deserve it. He loves us anyway. He extends himself for our sake, for our behalf. It says that he is slow to anger. Thanks be to God that that's the case. He doesn't fly off the handle each time we sin. He'd be doing that every moment of every day if that were the case. He is patient, slow to anger, eager for us to be restored to himself. And then he's abounding in love. And the Old Testament Hebrew word for love is chesed. You have to say it with that, right? Chesed. Chesed. It, it's, it's the same word as in the New Testament Greek, the word agape. Chesed or agape is God's unconditional love which always looks out for the need of the other person first. It's always asking, what does that person need? And then it does it. That's chesed. That's agape love. And God is abounding in that kind of love for you and me. He goes on then in verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Now, let's be clear. God is offended by our sins. He's righteously angry over our offenses against his will. And his holy law rightly accuses us 
and justly convicts us of our wrongs. His divine anger is indeed justly kindled by our rebellious ways. But as the verse says, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He's not going to hold on to this resentment against us over our sins for all eternity. He's not going to continuously forever be accusing us of our wrongs. Why? Well, let's go on to the next verse and see. In verse 10, it says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Oh, thanks be to God that that's the case. He doesn't repay us as we deserve. That, my friends, is called mercy. Maybe it'd be helpful to draw a distinction between grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, namely God's love and forgiveness, eternal life. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, punishment for sin. And verse 10 beautifully shows us God's mercy. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, David says, or repay us according to our iniquities. Wow, wondrous mercy. And of course, God brought that mercy to its fullest expression on a hill on the outskirts of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. There, mercy was displayed for all to see. For there, Jesus took our place, the innocent for the guilty. There, God showed us the depths of his love for us. For instead of treating us as our sins deserve by sending us to hell, he put Jesus through hell on the cross in our place. Instead of repaying us according to our iniquities, Jesus took all our sins and iniquities on himself and received the punishment for them that we had deserved. St. Paul writes about this amazing truth in his second letter to the church in Corinth, Greece, chapter 5. He says, God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Jesus identified with our sin completely so that we might receive his perfection. Martin Luther referred to this as the great exchange the great exchange. Jesus, on the one hand, took all of our sins and the punishment that we deserve, and in exchange for that, he gives us his righteousness, his perfection. Wow, deal or no deal? I'll take that deal every day that ends in Y, won't you? He takes all of our sins and the punishment that goes with it, and he gives us his perfection credited to our spiritual account so that we stand before God the Father as perfect in his eyes through Jesus. Amazing. Amazing. That's the nature of God's love. Praise the Lord indeed that he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. 
David goes on to verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How high is that? As high as the heavens are above the earth. Well, it, it helps to understand something of the Hebrew way of thinking about the heavens. Notice David uses the word heavens, plural. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Heavens, plural. It's the same idea as in Genesis 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's plural. You see, the Hebrews thought in terms of the threefold heavens above. The first of the heavens is the sky as seen in the daytime. They would look up. They would see the blue heavens above, the first level, if you will. The second of the heavens is the night sky, made visible, of course, only after the setting of the sun. The first heavens disappears, if you will, and now you see well beyond that, much higher to the second heavens, the stars above. My son Ian and his wife Kayla now live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and they have a great view of the night sky, as you can well imagine, without the interference of all the city lights that we have to deal with uh, here in the valley. That second of the heavens is so majestic to consider that God created all of it just by speaking his words, let it be, and it came into being. But then there is the third of the heavens, that place far beyond this universe, the place where God dwells, the place where, in the mind of the Hebrews, Abraham lived, the place where, of course, Jesus is preparing a room for all who trust in him as their Savior. Of course, no earthly image could possibly fully depict what heaven is like in exactly, but it is the glorious home that is promised to all who trust in Jesus as their Savior, that we are assured of in scriptures. And this third heaven, by the way, is what St. Paul refers to in this rather curious Bible verse from his second letter to the Corinthians. Listen to what he says here, 12 verse 2. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Interesting reference. In your devotion time this week, you might want to go to that chapter and read a little bit more of what St. Paul has to say about that incident. But now back to David's song. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. So how high is that? Infinitely high. And therefore, how great is God's love for us? Infinitely great, you see. That's the point. The lyrics of God's love song then continue with verse 12 where it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is that, the east from the west? How far is that? 
I mean, east and west go in opposite directions for all eternity, for all infinity. So don't think in terms of the globe here. Think in terms of the universe and beyond that. As far as the east is from the west for all infinity, that's how far God has cast our sins away from us. You know, the animal sacrifices uh, of the previous centuries only covered over the sins of the people. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the full and complete sacrifice for all sin of all people. And by his death and resurrection, sins are not just covered over. They are completely removed as far as the east is from the west. In other words, they're gone forever, never more to be brought up again. We stand before our creative creator God. We will stand before the judge on the last day, fully forgiven, perfect in his eyes through Jesus. Now the final verse of our, of our text, verse 13. This verse shows us that God's love is personal and relational. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I said earlier that the word compassion means feeling with. You see, God knows what you are going through, no matter what it is. And he feels it with you, and he cares about it. He cares for you as a loving, tender-hearted father attending to the needs of his dearly loved child. That's a personal, relational love that your heavenly father has for you yourself. What is true love? Boy, that's been the central uh, question among poets and philosophers and songwriters for centuries, hasn't it? And even, I would contend, it's been the question in the heart, soul, and mind of every human being from the beginning. What is true love? In our epistle lesson for today, we heard John's answer to that question. He said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, God has sung his love song to us. And that love song was given full voice when Jesus came into the world. The word made flesh. We might even say the song of God made flesh. For Jesus himself is the Father's song of love for us, his children. And in his song, we learn that love is action. And God has indeed acted on our behalf. So, what is our best response to all of that? How about this? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Next Sunday, we're going to take a look at Psalm number 121 under the theme, Help! I hope you'll come back for next week.